Hey everyone, I'm Jacob Cohen Donnelly, and this is a Media Operator. This show is a discussion about building media companies for current and prospective media operators. We discuss business models, audience development, products, subscriptions, advertising, commerce, everything to help you with your media business. To learn more and to become a premium member of the newsletter, visit amediaoperator.com slash AMO podcast to receive 10% off a yearly subscription. My guest this week is Craig Fuller, the founder and CEO of FreightWaves. During our one-hour conversation, we talked about how a guy with a trucking background identified a big need for data and information in that space and built a company for it. We dug into how the company has grown over the past couple years, how it pivoted when COVID hit from being heavily reliant on physical events to a TV-like experience being its top revenue driver. We also talked about how a company needs to have a very specific DNA to be in the data business and also the lucrative opportunities in offering financial indexes. I hope you enjoy this discussion. You came to media later in your career. What's your background and then why did you decide to launch FreightWaves? Yeah, so my background is my dad, uh, I grew up in trucking, uh, which is an industry that not a lot of people that aren't in the space think about, but it's a, you know, it's a massive industry uh, in trucking alone is an $800 billion industry. Uh, but my father started a trucking company in 1985 that became the fifth largest trucking company, which is, you know, there's 200,000 trucking companies in the United States. Um, and so he, uh, I saw him take a family business, sort of a bootstrap business into a you know, publicly traded business. And in 94, he took that company public. I was 15 years old. And, you know, I always idolized my dad. Uh, and there was two things that if you really want to, you know, if you have an entrepreneur for a father, the thing that, you know, the way to get close to him is to learn about what really makes him tick. And the two things that at the time in my formative ages was, you know, his trucking business and him taking his company public. So I've always been interested in uh, financial markets, data, uh, you know, CNBC and Bloomberg, et cetera, Wall Street Journal. And so that always left an impression on me. Um, and then I, I started working in the family business, started a business that did on-demand trucking, um, grew it, was really successful as part of my dad's company. And then my brother was, was it was obvious to me, my brother was going to run my dad's company and I wanted to do something different. So I started a payments company. We sold it to US Bank in 2012. Uh, and then I left in 14 and I was trying to figure out what to do. And there was this emerging freight tech scene where venture capital investors are really enamored with the freight and logistics space. And uh, what inspired me to, I was doing some consulting and stuff and uh, realized that there was this opportunity to create a data business and then uh, a media business inside the space. And the journey for that was we actually, the original idea was I was watching CNBC. I was doing some day trading, trading some stocks. And this was during the commodity crash of 2015-16. And they kept talking about uh, the uh, Baltic exchange or the Baltic dry index, freight futures, which were a reflection of ocean freight bulk uh, shipments on the ocean and how you could take the bulk uh, shipping rates and it would reflect global economic activity. And I thought that was interesting because there was nothing for trucking like that. And so the original thesis for Freightways was to go out and start a futures market based on trucking. And that's really how the original idea started. And as we looked at successful futures markets, we realized that 
successful future markets to build liquidity need news and data services to really serve that industry. And so that's that's kind of where the idea for freight waves came in is that, you know, you first looked at it as a futures opportunity and then recognized that there were no really great sources of, of, of news and data out there. So you just decided to build it yourself. Is that right? Yeah, that's pretty much. I mean, uh, I, I think that if you sort of compress the time in a two year period, that's correct. So went out, uh, didn't know anything about how you launch futures products. Uh, but, you know, I went to Chicago, spent a week going to all the major futures exchanges up in Chicago, met with executives. And then I ended up going to London where Baltic uh, futures or the FFAs are traded and spent about a month in London learning from a lot of the trading houses in London on how futures markets are, are built. And what, so we, we decided to launch this futures product. And as we went to market and talked to customers, uh, as well as media that were in trucking, we realized that the traditional media outlets that were in our space just didn't understand financial markets or business news. There was no equivalent to CNBC or Bloomberg for freight. This didn't exist. And, and there was other commodity markets. You know, oil has a really large ecosystem around oil data and news services. There's lots of B2B publications, you know, large uh, tier one outlets like Bloomberg and Argus and Opus that focus specifically on the energy markets. Agriculture has a pretty big uh, commodities market uh, news bureaus, but there was nothing really built around trucking freight and freight. And what's shocking about this is energy production in the United States is about a $400 billion market and trucking $700, $800 billion. So it's a much bigger market than you know, agriculture, uh, farming, oil, etc., and there's nothing built for it. So we, when we were thinking about starting uh, freight waves, we actually went to the traditional trucking media outlets, and we got turned down. In fact, we talked to you know uh, six or seven of them, and they just they couldn't grasp the product. And what was strange about that is I never had a problem getting media. You know, I think all journalists are looking for good stories. And we thought this, or I thought this was a good story, but they just wouldn't write about it because they didn't really comprehend it. It's a difficult story to sort of combine trucking and, and futures markets. Um, and so we went out and started talking to PR agencies and publicists. But it, you know this being in media is that publicists pretty much will take on anybody or PR agencies uh, will take on anyone. But we got turned down for the same reason. Is they couldn't conceptualize it. And we came across one publicist that said they'll take us on for $40,000 a month. Now, we were a bootstrap startup, had not raised much capital, and that just seemed insane. I sort of balked at the guy who told us this, and he said, you know, what I recommend is you do it yourself. You should write uh, about your market. It's a very difficult task. And so we ended up posting this job thinking we were going to write about social media blogging about futures, and an editor at one of the traditional trucking publications reached out and said he was interested in the role. And when we brought him on, we didn't think it would be a big, uh, you know, it was never ambitions to be a big media outlet. Uh, but we brought him on and he started writing about trucking. And we realized that if you only wrote about futures, that nobody would read it. And so what he started writing about was Amazon. The Tesla had rolled up, was rolling up their semi. Amazon was moving towards a log- becoming a logistics company you know, chartering aircraft and boats and trucks. And this was this sort of interesting time in transportation. 
a lot of venture capital was pouring into freight transportation. Uber was starting. So there's all this stuff happening. And because I had raised venture capital in my past and currently, and was tied into a lot of the traditional VC media or tech media, um, it was very easy for us to give account on why this technology uh, uh, influx and investor influx was interesting for freight. And so that's really what powered the, the business. It wasn't the futures market, right, about futures market, but it was this sort of understanding of how technology is going to really impact our industry and how this new venture capital stream of money was, that was coming in and new entrants was going to change the paradigm for the whole space. And that's really how we got started. And all of a sudden, we built up all this traffic. And, I, and it, you know, it was, we were getting 40, 50,000 page views a month, not huge. We were probably at that point in the top 10 of all media, uh, trucking BDB media outlets. And then the editor went on vacation for a week. And it was during the hurricane, the Harvey hurricane that hit Houston, completely decimated it. And I didn't want to bother him, but I had ran FEMA's disaster logistics in my uh, part of my dad's company. And I knew exactly what was going to happen in a hurricane from a logistics standpoint. And I started writing under his name, which he, he was really upset about, by the way. He didn't like the fact that I was using his name to write. But the traffic exploded. We got 100,000 page views uh, in, on these hurricane articles, telling drivers and carriers what to expect in the hurricane. And the traffic just blew up. And that was sort of a realization that there was this desire in the industry to have news and information that was written from a firsthand, uh, someone who was experienced, who had been an operator, uh, writing about the, uh, uh, in this case, was a hurricane. And that firsthand knowledge, we realized, was a re- gave us a really powerful voice to describe the, uh, this industry in a way that no, no other media outlet had ever done. Now, so FreightWaves has, it's a multifaceted business. I mean, when I... When I was obviously researching for this episode, I was, you know, spent some time on the site and there's news, there's podcasts, there's video, there's research, data, there's a job board. Uh, I, I, there's the, you know, the, the futures markets that, you know, kind of started the whole idea. I mean, can you walk through the various components of the business uh, and how they complement each other? Yeah, really just dig into each of those. Yeah. So, you know, I always tell people that are sort of confused by our business plan or our model to go read Bloomberg on Bloomberg. And that's been, you know, someone gave me that book when, when I first started this business. Uh, and in many ways, a lot of the inspiration we've taken to build Freightways has been based on Michael Bloomberg's biography is essentially what we've done is we've sort of uh, modernized it, if you will, because, you know, he wrote that 20 years ago. In addition to put it, you know, more specific to our industry, we call it, we have a term called truckify it. So essentially the way we think of our business is we have a media business, which includes, as you mentioned, podcast, video, streaming video, uh, print, or we don't print magazines, but text media. Um, and that's, that's one component of our business. And we, that all rolls up to media. We developed a product, uh, called passport, which I'll get into in a second, which is a research product. Essentially it's a taken what we've, done from we traditionally would print uh, or put into our text-based media we've now created a subscription product out of it and i'll describe that in a second and then the the last part of our business is our data product it's a recurring revenue SaaS product that provides fundamental data 
near real-time data on what's happening in the U.S. economy, uh, and more specific, what's happening in freight. And that data is sold to companies to make pricing decisions, uh, to make routing decisions, to mitigate risk, all of the components of their business. And the data product uh, also, we've listed futures contracts against uh, the data sets that are inside of our, our, our SaaS business. And so that's how that futures business it looks at it. It's very similar if you sort of broke down our data product. Uh, it's very similar to what SMD does or Platts does when they list futures contracts against their data. Uh, that's how we built that, that data product. So if you if you sort of looked at our media business, you you were publishing about 45 to 50 articles a day. Uh, we have about 30 journalists that cover everything from air freight, to ocean freight, to warehousing, to trucking, uh, technology and venture capital, uh, human work work issues, public policy, safety, sales, and really they're publishing all of these different articles. And I think you know one of the things that I get asked often is, can you really Right, is, is the industry, can you build a media business based on this one industry and make it dynamic? And the challenge is we simply can't keep up. This is a massive industry with hundreds of thousands of participants. 40% of the U.S. economy is tied to what we call logistics dependent. Uh, uh, these are logistics dependent industries. In other words, if they didn't have logistics, they didn't have freight movement, they would effectively go out of business. And so it's a massive industry that's constantly playing a critical role in uh, the economic viability. And so our reporters are writing articles about the subjects that our industry cares about, everything from M&A transactions to venture capital uh, stuff to, you know, like public policy. And then we inform it with our data. So the data that comes from our SaaS product, uh, our journalists are referencing our data inside of the articles that they produce. And so if you think of what happened during COVID, the logistics and supply chain industry played a front row seat and was on the front lines of ensuring that we had groceries and had, you know, uh, PPP and, and our, our PPE uh, equipment and, and medical supplies and all the stuff that you need to, to ensure that the, you know, the business, that the economy can run and people are safe. Logistics companies are on those front lines delivering those products. And because it's unprecedented event, the industry itself needs information, needs data to know what's happening. And, you know, they're responding to this massive influx of demand for logistics services and didn't, before we came along, uh, wouldn't have had information about what's happening in real time. You know, our competitors that predated us, our predecessors, often were writing articles that were weeks old. And you're dealing with an environment where things are changing literally by the minute. You need to know what's happening. That's where the role we play. So our, our journalists are writing articles. Uh, and then we have about a dozen podcasts that we uh, we bring together. And it's all about having this cohesive brand of putting content in text, which is more on a, you know, when something breaks, you write about it. And then you have scheduled podcasts and video casts that you uh, produce based on the content that we've, you know, that's the news stories. And those podcasts range, and they're videos. So one thing we had was we had a podcast platform, and then we added video. And so we actually film uh, our podcast, if you will. Um, and, and what that enables us to do is add some visual layers to it. So if we're talking about a, you know this hurricane that's happened, uh, that's hit Louisiana, Hurricane Laura, 
you can visualize it with maps of the hurricane or data. So it brings that Bloomberg-esque component to it. Um, and that's essentially our podcast and our video cast will with you know a dozen of these, but they'll talk about different subjects. One of them talks about public listed stocks and they sort of break into, you know, pull up Kroger's P&L or earnings or Kraft and they're talking about their transportation logistics and supply chain spending or Amazon's $70 billion in logistics. So they take a sort of a Main Street, uh, a Wall Street uh, version of the business, but talk specifically about the freight stuff. And that's going to an audience of salespeople and executives in the space that do business with the Amazons and Walmarts. They want to understand how they're thinking about logistics in a financial format. We have a sales uh, podcast that talks about sales effectiveness and marketing effectiveness, and it's built for the transportation salespeople. You know, there's 300,000 people in logistics that are selling services to shippers. It's a huge audience, and they built a podcast and in a community around that. We have one called Drilling Deep. He's our energy economist, but he talks about the price of diesel and goes into this whole energy concept. And so what we've tried to do is take this audience and this community we built with FreightWaves and really dive into very specific topics that we're able to sort of uh, peel the, the layer on these things that, that our community cares about. And so it's, it's, it's a very, very deep dive into these topical elements of our industry. Uh, that is very important. You know, everything from price movement because spot rates are traded or not not traded on exchange, but they move rapidly. A lot of volatility. You know, in a given week, you can have thirty to forty percent volatility in a given market just because of demand. And we have people that break that down. What is the revenue breakdown of the business between media research data uh, and the futures products? Yeah, it's a great question. So. Uh, our media business is a little bit over a run rate of about $11 million today. Uh, so we signed a contract overnight or yesterday that was about a million dollars. Uh, so it's about $11 million run rate business. Uh, the data business is about an $8 million ARR. So the total business is about $19 million. Um, if you sort of componentize that, about half a million of, of our media business um, uh, is in uh, research. So it's a research product we launched earlier this year. Uh, and basically what that is, is we're targeting the C-level executives. We looked at our audience. We said, you know, we have a million uniques that come to our site a month, but there's this, you know, five to 10,000 uh, uh, of, you know, a very small percent of that audience it would be willing to pay for proprietary research that's very similar to what you would expect with a sell-side bank on Wall Street. So we hired some analysts that came from Wall Street and said, why don't you create this subscription product that uh, publishes research based on the data, but editorializes it through context. And so uh, we created a recurring revenue subscription product and that launched in January. Uh, we're really pleased with it. Uh, but more importantly, it's a part. It, what's interesting about that is these were already customers paying for data uh, for the data services. Uh, many of them, and uh, now they're you know they're paying for this research product that contextualizes it. And the reason we did that was we felt that ultimately you can sort of repackage up data, you can repackage up context, and uh, you have an audience that's willing to pay. A lot, I think a lot of media outlets go with the hundred dollar model or a couple hundred dollar model a year, 
And we know our audience, the people willing to pay are willing to pay a much higher price. Uh, and, and in fact, we think the $2,500 a year is probably low, but um, we did that to sort of test the product out. And we think there's a lot of opportunity for growth there. Um, if you looked at our media business, sort of broke it down. We launched when COVID happened, we had an events business um, last year. So our events business was half our revenue. We did about $11 million last year. Half of the revenue came from events and obviously it's zero this year. Um, and so I remember in March, we had this TV product that we were sort of incubating and it wasn't immensely successful. It hadn't generated a lot of revenue, but we had built some infrastructure for, you know, streaming media. And we realized that we were going to have to cancel our event in Atlanta. I was expecting about 2,500 people, two and a half, three million in revenue. And we, when we decided to do that, we didn't go with an off-the-shelf virtual events platform. What we did was we took our video infrastructure and turned it into our virtual event. Uh, and so we, you know, we started the year with a couple hundred thousand dollars in revenue in video. It's now the largest component of our revenue from advertising of all of our media business. Uh, so it's about six million dollars in about six million dollar run rate today versus our you know text media is about five. And that's a product that we literally launched in March uh, during, during the COVID. And what we've done is we've been able to take the audience that was to, that would come to our events and even broader and created this virtual uh, event experience. So we expect to have 2,500 people in Atlanta in May, 92,000 people that tuned in for our virtual event. Just astounding success. And what we realized is that we live in an industry where customers are, you know, companies are used to acquiring their clients through personal relationship. Uh, and when that's gone, they still have to find ways to acquire new clients or engage them. And uh, the virtual platform, the virtual t TV platform that we've built is a great way to do that. So there's about 25,000 people a day, uniques that actually tune into our streaming TV product that covers everything from you know weather, we have a full-time meteorologist, to news about the industry, to spot rates, to topical things that are happening, maybe Elon Musk has talked about their new truck, the, you know, the new Tesla semi they're rolling out, or Nikola, a, a fuel cell vendor, a fuel cell OEM that has recently gone public through a SPAC, you know, gets this $30 billion valuation with zero revenue. Those are those are things that people are interested in our space and even broader. And and our, you know, our correspondents will dive into that and talk about that. And what we're doing is we we've effectively taken, uh, you know, we only have two full-time host in, in video that are specifically focused on video or audio products. Um, the rest of it is pulling through the rest of our journalists. So if we have a public policy discussion, we'll bring in our Washington correspondent to talk about what's happening with some new law or rule. Or if we're talking about the Tesla semi, we have a OEM that's in Detroit that, that uh, we have a journalist that does the OEMs in Detroit that will call in and talk about what's happening with it. And so what we've tried to do is take this ecosystem, this community that we build and bring, uh, bring our journalists without having to hire outside talent uh, to, to become subject matter experts. And then we bring in the community uh, to also contribute content. And that's effectively the way we think of it. I want to dig into the, to the events component because a lot of media companies we're, we're finding a lot of success over the past couple of years building up 
robust event offerings. It was one of the actual profitable lines of business for many niche companies. And then COVID hits and the business is gutted. You know, one of the reasons events have been so good is biz dev people believe that they're benefiting because there's a one-to-one conversation, right? I go up to your booth, I talk to you, you believe like there's something there. With virtual events, that doesn't exist. How have you helped your clients like measure ROI with your virtual events? Because I mean, that's that's it's your largest business, and obviously they're 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 seeing something from an ROI perspective. Yeah, we you know I've talked to a lot of event producers since COVID uh, took place, and they're struggling to figure out how to retain their audience or even revenue. And one of the you know we've had very little uh, refunds from what we had sold prior to COVID, so very little. Um, uh, of having to get back or, or cancel contracts that were done. And we offered it, but we also said, look, trust us to, you know, we're happy. What well, we told the, the, so we're going into our May event, we had over a million dollars. We expected three. And this was in March, early March. Um, Cause most of your sales and events happens within that last 45 days. And, and typically within, you know, that 30 to 15 day windows where sort of the bulk of your revenue happens. Um, and so, what we did was we said, we went to the companies and said, look, we're going to do a virtual event. We know that virtual events suck. Like, we get it. We know how bad most virtual events are. But trust us to do a better job than that. And if you don't like the results, we're happy to refund your money. And, and, but if you do like the results, then let's talk about a strategy to make these things effective. And most of the community, I think we only had three or four companies that decided to pull out. Um, uh, they were small companies. We had very few ticket refunds. We took the tickets that we had, a couple hundred thousand in revenue and tickets, uh, and converted them into our research product. We offered and said, hey, you know, you've already uh, done it. We'll credit you for a future event. We'll give you a membership into our passport product. If you like it, then great. You can keep it. So that worked out well. Um, but what we told the community was, trust us. Let us do something that you have not seen before. And effectively, the way we treated our events was like you would treat a broadcast TV network. And so we had built this infrastructure. And at the point going into March, we had about $300,000 in CapEx, had a small team of about four people that were in production doing pre and post production video. Um, and and we, we had a little bit of talent. So total team of about eight that were involved in the entire production. And we for the three days that we had the audience, we treated it like a broadcast TV network. And we said, this is going to be high cadence, really fast. We'll do 120 uh, uh, different talks in, uh, throughout the schedule in a day. And these include, so 120 different videos include commercials. So we ran commercials in between breaks. We ran talks, uh, so some sponsored content. Some of it was sponsored, some of it wasn't. Um, but effectively, what we did was we tried to drive this mass distribution. And we told them that the... A virtual event is not going to be like an in-person event. And if you if you sort of go in with those rules and you realize that you're not going to replicate exactly what you get with an in-person event, then you I think it, it sort of opens up what you can do with it. And we said, look, you're going to reach a much larger audience than you ever would reach through an in-person event. Going from 2,500 people to 92,000 is a completely different experience. You'll never get that in an in-person event. And you're going to get executives that don't have time to fly into Atlanta for two or three days to actually tune into the content. Uh, and you'll have this evergreen element. 
And so that worked out really well. And then what we did was we created a lot of meeting experiences. So the ability for people to register to, to sign up meetings. We worked with the sponsors and the, the demo companies that did these seven minute commercials. So we took the, the booths, if you will, the people that are in our exhibit hall uh, and, um, and, and the requirement to come to our event is you have to demo. So even in person, the requirement we have for our community is that if you're coming to our event, you should demo your technology on the stage. It's all tech sort of centric. And we said, look, for our virtual event, you'll have seven, a seven minute commercial that you can talk about your technology and demo it. And then we created a Slack channel and then we created an app that helps create that engagement. And what we found was, so the, the thing about virtual that you have to remember is unlike an in-person event where there's this osmosis or this sort of organic networking that takes place, somebody's walking across the exhibit hall or going to the bar and they run into somebody they know or see something that sort of catches their eye in the exhibit hall, that doesn't exist. And there's nothing you, you know, you can't replicate that. No matter how hard you try, if the person that's your guest doesn't want to be involved, that the attendee has to make an effort. The attendee has to want to uh, network. He has to want to be a part of the experience. You can't just expect it to happen without their effort. And so we did a lot of things around incenting them to be a part of the experience. So we gave away prizes. The, we gave away a Peloton bike and said, look, if you sign up, we're going to give this drawing. Um, we have what we do with our live events, uh, virtual events, is we have a studio in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which is our headquarters. And we have live correspondence that are between breaks. And what they do is they, they pull off the Slack channel, which we use uh, for communicating, and they're commenting on the Slack channel. When somebody puts something in, they'll talk about it. And that engagement element creates this, you feel like you're a part of an experience. Um, and so we found a lot of success with that. And, and while we can't exactly replicate what you can get in an in-person event, we can create something that's actually quite different from what they would have expected otherwise. I want to talk about the organization a little bit because with so many products and so many different choices for a user, it can get pretty tricky managing everything. What is the organizational breakdown of the company and how do you as the CEO manage priorities to ensure the right projects are getting the correct resources? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. So effectively, the thing that our venture cats, we've raised $75 million to date. Um, you know, it's very difficult to raise that kind of capital on a media company, or at least the scale that we are at as a traditional media company, or even a digital media company, because it's just, it's, it's investors, venture capitalists are typically cynical about media companies, because they're always convinced that Facebook or LinkedIn or Google is going to kind of eat your lunch. And I think there's a lot of reason for that. It's just difficult to compete uh, as a media company. So a lot of VCs sort of shy away from it. Um, I think the ones that are successful have these really strong communities. You see it in the athletic, you see it in Barstool Sports, you've, you've, you know, Morning Proof, they didn't raise a lot of venture capital, but, you know, they built a very successful community. Um, for us, it's the same thing, but it's still difficult to get VCs invested. So they're most, what our VCs are most concerned about is our recurring revenue, our subscription-based revenue, particularly around data. Because these data businesses that sell fundamental market data are immensely valuable. You know, the S&Ps, uh, what was Reuters, or now Refinitiv, is very valuable. You know, Bloomberg is obviously uh, a very valuable, Argus, Opus, et cetera. These companies are, are you know, 
trade at very high multiple because they're data-driven businesses. They provide fundamental data to traders or businesses to make better decisions. Those businesses become immensely valuable. And that's what our VCs are focused on. So what I've tried to do is professionalize the management team on our data business. And so we brought in professional management that manages the sales organization and runs it like a traditional SaaS process. So you hire salespeople, business development executives, customer success executives. Uh, you know, you build the metrics around SaaS. And that business is run as almost a separate unit. So even as founder, while I have some product, you know, I get involved in some of the product discussions. I don't spend a lot of time managing the day-to-day of our data product, not because I don't want to, because I'm not good at it. So the team that's involved in managing it is very good at, at organizational processes and organizing the sales motion that you need around our data product. And, and, and that's where a lot of the management infrastructure has gone. What I spend most of my time on is around our media business because our media business serves two functions. One is it generates a lot of cash and cash flow, but it also provides a top of the funnel for our recurring revenue SaaS business. And what it's enabled us to do is take all of the margins from our media business and basically fund the customer acquisition of our SaaS community, of our data product. And what it actually has done is enabled us because we have this massive audience where 55 or 60% of the logistics traffic comes to our site in terms of total traffic of all sites around the, you know, around the world. Uh, so we have this massive community. We're able to reach the community. And because the media business generates margin and is evangelizing our data and is communicating about our data and is using that in, in as part of its content, if you will, that creates a lot of top of the funnel customers that are interested in, would be interested in data, find out about our product through our media business. And they sort of enter the funnel that way and then go on to assess business. We don't have to pay anybody to access those customers. In fact, because we're running advertising against a lot of the content through non-competitive businesses, um, it, it oftentimes helps subsidize what what would be the the marketing cost so effectively we have two metrics we look at is cac which is a term in SaaS that means customer acquisition cost so our investors get you know two numbers they get the cac number which is what sort of gross customer acquisition cost in a traditional metric and then they get what we call net cac which is a, a term that we invented which is if you took all of the margins in media which are quite large and you put it against the uh, traditional customer acquisition cost, what is your net CAC? And that's actually negative now. So what it means is we're able to sell, we're able to grow our SaaS business, our, our business, without basically having to, to use capital to, uh, to acquire new customers. I mean, it's created this immensely valuable flywheel. And I, so I as sort of describe what I do as I spend most of my time driving the evangelism of the business through our media uh, outlet and making sure that the media business is focused on evangelizing the core components of our SaaS business that maybe we have a new product or a new data set we're trying to talk about. Make sure it's embedded into the uh, communication stream of our media business. 
So in in July, you announced that Freight Waves had uh, raised two minority investments totaling about thirty seven million dollars. You touched on before that you know it's it's hard to get media investors excited, or sorry, it's hard to get investors excited about media investments. But you know, SaaS is it, it's very easy to to raise money if you're a you know a SaaS product. You know, what was your pitch to these newer investors? You know, how do they look at, you know, the fact that still over 50% of your business is media, but they're investing, you know, tens of millions of dollars at, you know, high valuations, I'm sure. Uh, how did you get them excited about the business when so much is media? Yeah, it's 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 interesting. So we had raised before this round uh, about 40, about $38 million. And uh, we were going out. We went out in January, so we got an unsolicited term sheet in October that we didn't that did not close, and we went out in January to to Silicon Valley. And my CFO had come from traditional SaaS and worked at a New York-based SaaS company, uh, uh, and so he had spent most of his time working with you know the big sort of tier one venture capital firms, you know the names that everybody would think of and thought about VC that knows anything about it uh, out in San Francisco and in Silicon Valley. And so we went out there thinking, because we'd had a lot of interest, uh, inbound interest for our business. We thought, well, we're running a competitive process and we'll call these you know, really aggressive bids. But what happened was really strange for us. Now, we were dealing with a post-WeWork, uh, so this is mid-January, sort of post-WeWork uh, challenges that were still present. You know, Venture investors became much more discerning about business models and unit economics than they ever had been before, or at least had been in this last cycle. Um, we're also dealing with a little bit of COVID because it was starting to hit China and some of the VCs were, were sort of worried about it. And there was just sort of this cautious sort of risk off environment in Silicon Valley. But what, so we, we, we didn't get a lot of, you know, it wasn't a lot of VCs that were sort of falling over themselves, traditional VCs. But when we went to what I would call growth capital or private equity, you know, the big tier one names that your neighbor that knows nothing about private equity could probably name one of these firms, you know, big, big names. We found that there was a lot of interest in this ecosystem model. So traditional SaaS investors could not get excited about a media-driven business. In fact, a lot of the questions came, why don't you spin those off? Why don't you split these businesses? Um, they were really concerned about whether the media business could survive against Google and Facebook uh, and LinkedIn, not realizing that B2B is all about a community and b about content something that um that is not easy for a facebook or google in a frankly niche market their perspective to sort of disintermediate they just didn't they just didn't comprehend it or didn't sort of appreciate that but the big tier one growth equity firms did what they realized was if you look at and so what we found is really more success than what i would call new york based investors the the investor we closed in uh, July was an investor out of Los Angeles King uh, Capital, which is a you know, $40 billion uh, a private equity firm. Uh, but what we found is that those investors that had done later stage understood the ecosystem, had seen this model work out time and again, particularly in financial markets, where companies that had built strong communities could launch new products basically very efficiently because the community itself would support those product iterations. The community itself wanted the company to succeed because they had some affinity to it. Media is what's that glue for us. And I think media 
is the glue for a lot of communities. And you see it with some of the bigger name brands like Barstool Sports, where people are buying swag off because they want to wear the brand. But you see it also in uh, companies that are in financial markets where there's a strong brand affinity for Bloomberg. There's a strong brand affinity for uh, for these, you know, the New York Times. Um, and so you see that when you have that community, it's, it creates this very efficient sales channel to bring new product iterations and launch new products. And your, your community is going to be supportive. And what we found, and I think this would be true of, of really anyone that's sort of launched a, a, a community-based media brand, is that your product doesn't have to be perfect the day it's launched. Is that if your community has such high brand affinity with you, what they will do is they will let you launch a product in beta and work with you to refine it. They have so much confidence and excitement over being a part of this experience because they, they love the brand, but they will support a product that isn't exactly perfect the day it launches. And that's been the truth for us. And that's why we found that this is, uh, we were able to get this sort of bump, if you will, in the growth capital firms uh, for a, you know, what I would call a, SaaS uh, multiple on a media business. Very different sort of deal. So long as the investor believes that that community is going to enable you to build a recurring revenue stream, they, they can get that bump. And so what's happened with us is they've investors have looked at our, our revenue and have underwritten the entire business on the belief that that we can turn this community into this sort of ongoing subscription revenue stream because it's sort of proven out knowing that we have very compelling unit economics because the media business not only helps us acquire customers and advertise uh, essentially for free but it also creates a lot of cash flow that you can um, use to, to invest in customer um, R&D and other other things that you would do in a traditional SaaS business so effectively your investors if you if, if freight waves had only been a media company the multiple that these investors would have invested in, if they would have invested at all, would have been far lower. But because you had the SaaS component, they effectively looked at the entire business and went, we're just going to treat this all like SaaS. Is that basically it? I, I think that's fair. I, I think um, essentially what, what happened, I mean, you, you have to remember both these businesses, and I don't know that I've said this, they're effectively two, they media business is three years old in terms of publishing, but two years old, less than, uh, or two years old in commercialization. So we've been commercial for two years. Uh, our data business was launched in May of 2018. So a little bit over two years. So we, these are very young businesses growing at, you know, 250% year over year um, with margins. Our media business operates effectively the same margins as our SaaS business today. So they look very similar if you didn't know anything about them from a financial profile, they look very similar, similar margin profile and frankly, similar growth. And so it's easy to get sort of underwrite it financially. But yes, the the underwriting criteria is all based on recurring revenue. That's what they have to get comfortable with is that the SaaS business can grow. If we were a media business only, the, the valuation would be less than the money we've written. Or, or that we've raised. I mean, just because media businesses trade at, you know, the best media businesses in the world trade at four times revenue. Um, you know, you're looking at mid-digit EBITDA, the, the upper end of the range. Advertising, you know, uh, on an advertising basis, um, these businesses are trading at, you know, 
for small media businesses, four to six times EBITDA um, if they're advertising driven. So it's very difficult for investors to sort of, you know, there is a huge arbitrage between the media valuation and the SaaS valuation. So what we've tried to do is, is, is rightfully uh, describe our business as this community that enables us to build this SaaS business along with it and use very efficient capital to get there. Is FreightWaves profitable today? Uh, no, we're not. Um, and that's you know, by design um, because we, we've chosen to grow faster, uh, to grow versus uh, achieving profitability. Um, and so that's the, it's, it's relatively cheap for us to raise capital. And so our focus has been in capital raise, uh, to use capital to, to, to grow, to build a product, uh, to continue to enhance what we're doing. Now, having said that, we went from a, you know, a two, $2 million burn in January to in July was a $250,000 burn. Uh, and that's per month. Um, so you just think about that. If we had maintained that uh, level in January, you're talking about a, a burn of $24 million this year. We're way, way, way below that. Um, and so we, we believe that we've, you, you've got an, what I would call an infinite balance sheet or in terms of the burn rate. Uh, our burn rate's going down you know, a couple hundred thousand a month. We're way above our pro forma. We beat our July numbers by over $500,000 in burn. And um, you know, our sort of official uh, expectation is that we break even sometime mid-next year. But I actually believe I'm more bullish than that, and I think we'll we'll end up beating that um, sometime this year. Now, one of the things uh, you know, in, in some of our email emails back and forth, is you know, you've talked a little bit about FreightWaves acquisition strategy because you have bought other media companies and then integrated them into the business. Can you walk us through kind of how how you look at those acquisitions? And then also talk a little bit, you know, in one of our conversations, you referred to it as like a valuation arbitrage from how FreightWaves is valued versus these small companies. Yeah. So the the challenge of a lot of bootstrap, you know, family uh, publishers, family ran publishers or founder run publishers in B2B is that they tend to be subscale. Um, you know, that's why you see private equity firms that are, are buyout shops that have 30 brands. And, you know, they're, they're sort of these really sort of targeted niche brands. It's very difficult for publishers in this environment, particularly advertising-driven publishers or publishers that are print magazine publishers and sort of have that legacy in print to, A, make the investments they need to, to sort of go into digital. And they may not even have the DNA or the sort of muscle to do that. And then B, uh, it's difficult because they don't have their subscale, so it's hard for them to find buyers that are interested in their properties. And so there's a significant arbitrage or significant gap between a company like ourselves, which is able to raise capital under tech multiples, and these you know bootstrapped magazine traditional publishers or legacy publishers, and what they get valued at. So if you look at sort of a multiple, you're talking four to five EBITDA on a on a you know traditional publisher, uh, and you're talking about us on on a revenue multiple, which is high double you know mid double you know double digits, if you will, times revenue. It's it's a completely different uh, game. It's 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 and so for us, we can acquire these accretive EBITDA positive businesses that have what I would say 
tangentially connected communities, but not overlapping communities. And so when we look at acquisitions, we bought a company last year called American Shipper, uh, which was the sort of second largest global trade uh, publication and logistics focused on ocean shipping and trade. A traditional publisher that hadn't hadn't made a successful leap in sort of a digital age, but it tried. Uh, you know, the, the, the family-owned businesses that was started in 1952 and had printed these publications, had a good brand, good content, good writers, but just didn't, could not make that leap for whatever reason to a digital age. And we were able to, to acquire it. Um, and acquire it for, you know, the numbers I've described and the, the even a range of four to six. And essentially when we bought it, the, what we were able to do was convert the community over to our content management system, convert it over to, you know, we have high domain ranking with Google and Facebook and LinkedIn. So all of a sudden there's a sort of organic uh, SEO boost that immediately uh, happens because of the brand uh, of freight waves, and you sort of leave this as a sub brand under your core, core domain. Um, and so you get the benefit of, of all of a sudden Google saying, Oh, here's a freight waves new content, even though it's content that we, we pre you know that we acquired. Um, so we, we immediately saw a traffic increase, basically doubled the traffic within days of when we uh, converted it. And then what we also saw was that we could go back to those advertisers that had been with the publication for many years and describe how we do uh, content advertising, custom content studios, et cetera, in a digital world. And we've already effectively paid for itself. We've owned that asset for, you know, about 14, 16 months. It was actually like last July. Uh, so uh, we, we it's already paid for itself in the the first year. And that's because we've been able to make it highly accretive to us. And so that that is the type of transactions we like. Now, we didn't buy an overlapping trucking publication because that's really what we were predominantly known for before this acquisition. We bought an ocean publication. And what we found is they had 30,000 email subscribers in their email list, only 2,000 of those, and we had 130,000, only 2,000 of those actually overlapped with our community. So still focused on freight, still focused on logistics, but not an identical community to ours. Thinking about your data play, how do you see or how should other media companies think about expanding into this sort of strategy uh, that you've executed so far? Well, the thing about uh, data is you have to have a, a data DNA uh, to do it. I, you know, it's not impossible to do research. Like, I think there's two ways to sort of play the data play or subscription data businesses. One is, you can launch, uh, take some of your better journalists, and this is what we did for our research product, that we're actually publishing stuff. The stuff that's in our now what we call Passport, which is our, our subscription uh, research product, was basically we took reporters that were already writing content on the free site. Some of them had a sell side, had worked in sell side Wall, Wall Street, and were already publishing stuff that was effectively free. We moved them into sort of a paywall environment, subscription. But, but then they were narrowly focused on writing content specific to this research product. And that was a sort of a low-cost way of creating a data play or a subscription play because you're already taking something that's in your DNA uh, that, you, that your reporters already know how to write content and change the format a little bit. You put some more data, which was pull, pulled from our data, but you can acquire data 
that you have, and you don't have to have a huge data DNA to pull this off, and you can effectively create a recurring revenue product out of that. And that's what we were able to do with Passport. The data business as it relates to Sonar is something that I believe you have to have a data DNA and a tech infrastructure to actually execute. I don't think you can go into the market and have the sort of cloud-based API infrastructure um, uh, and create you know, a lot of, in our engineering and data science teams, about 40 people, um, 30, you know, 27 of those are on data science, either cleansing or building algorithms. That is not something that a lot of companies in publishing probably have data scientists. Um, and so that is something, if you're going to really pursue a data business, you have to have true data scientists, which are building algorithms around the data methodologies. And it's a quite different sort of DNA than what most media publishers have. Uh, but for us, we built that infrastructure and then we built all of the sort of dashboard components that people wanted and asked for. Um, we built it in the cloud um, and then we built a really rich set of APIs that companies could then link up to and ingest our data into their data systems to make their decisions. But I don't think that that's something that if you don't have a data DNA, I think that's probably a little bit outside of what most, you know, most media companies would be able to leap to. You really have to have some, you know, some of that built into your infrastructure. If they're data scientists, and you have to have, you know, our data that we are providing is quite unique. It's data that's never been seen before. We went out to the market, yeah, in transportation and trucking and and ocean freight, and air freight, rail, etc. You have all of these vendors, software companies that have built you know, lots of infrastructure in their business, but are, are basically good at providing workflow intelligence inside their companies, uh, for their customers. They're not good at building anonymized and aggregated data. They don't know how to aggregate it. They don't know how to anonymize it. They don't know how to sell it. And so what we've done is we've gone out to those companies and IoT vendors in the space, technology vendors, and said, hey, let's, let's work with you and help cleanse your data and build methodologies around the data, all anonymized and protect your customer's interest. And we're going to build a map of the market, essentially. And that's what we've done. And we partnered with a lot of IoT companies and we published it. And then we've gone to our customers and said, now you can feed your data to benchmark your performance against these data sets. So before we jump into the final part of the show, I do want to give a couple minutes to talk about the futures product in a little bit more detail. Because, you know, you are a media company that, you know, you're a media company that has launched a financial product, uh, which is there are very few that have done that. Can you walk through what the business model is for the futures product and how, how FreightWave specifically generates revenue from that? Yeah, so the futures product are basically – so I think Platts, uh, Argus, Opus, companies that are in financial or publishers essentially, original publishers that – focused on specific industries. So Opus and Argus uh, and Platts to a degree are sort of oil and energy publishers. And, and they built reporters that provide information to folks in that ecosystem. Uh, and then it figured out that they could take that same product and create indexes out of it. So S&P is probably a name that most of your listeners would know, if not everybody. And we all know the S&P 500, uh, but S&P has got this massive commodities data business that, that they call it with a company called Platts that basically lists bespoke commodities or, or not bespoke commodities, but, you know, really focused commodities. 
uh, and they built indexes around it. So they create some type of assessment product. Uh, so what an assessment is, is a measurement of price through a consistent methodology. So if I want to know the price of steel, as an example, uh, you know, Platts goes out and gets 30 or 50 or 100 steel uh, producers to send in their daily quotes and spot prices. If I want to know the price of coffee, it's the same thing. Uh, oil, same thing. And effectively, they built these publishers have built these methodologies to create indexes. And, you know, what they do with those indexes is they take that and they, this methodology is published and they create basically a contract on it. That contract is nothing more than a piece of paper that's listed on a, listed on an exchange uh, and regulated, and the methodology is published. But the contract, effectively a futures contract, says the you know you, you have a buyer and a seller on on both sides of the transaction, um, and basically the buyer is long, one you know you have one side that's long and one side that's short, and effectively they're wiping the transactions out. Effectively, and then this futures thing gets very complicated for, for a lot of people. So I'll keep it, try to keep it as simple as I can. Effectively, what we did was we said we want to create a futures contract based on trucking. So we've created an you know an assessment or, or worked to create an assessment. We created a methodology, and now that methodology and assessment is published, uh, and then the contracts are settled against an index. So it means whatever that index that you reference, it, whatever price it's at. Is what the uh, uh, the contract settles at on a given date, and then those contracts are listed and are traded in financial markets. How you get paid on that is basically every single time someone trades it, there is a very small, minute piece that goes to the exchange, and a very small, minute piece that goes to the clearinghouse, and in our case, a small piece that goes to the publisher. So if you're the publisher of an index. You get paid. So every single time someone trades the S and P 500, S and P gets paid. Or every single time someone trades the uh, WTI, which is the big oil contract, you know, uh, the publisher, I believe it's S and P or Platt, gets paid, and so forth and so on. And so what happens is effectively it's like a royalty on a on a music, uh, uh, you know, uh, on a CD. So if Taylor Swift publishes a song, every single time that song is played on the radio, she's a really tiny piece of that. And so it, it takes a lot of scale to get there. Um, but at scale, these businesses become immensely valuable because they generate revenue from two things. One is they generate it from the transactions themselves, small, minute fees that are traded. Uh, and they generate it usually through the back testing of the data. So one of the things that you end up doing as a, as a sort of benchmark of an industry is you publish the index and then you provide a lot of analysis and tools that help people break down that index under to basically help model and forecast or build decisioning based on that index. And that's probably the most power, the most valuable part of a, of a benchmark is that second piece. Once it's scaled uh, is selling to companies that want to know what's actually happened with it. And that's why frankly, S and P trades at such a high valuation. So over the next three years, where do you see freight waves going? So I, I, I think, you know, in the next three years, we believe this is a platform business that can uh, do a number of acquisitions uh, and, and really expand our community and then, you know, become the benchmark uh, business in the industry as well as the data business, the leading provider of data 
analytics inside the transportation logistics space, supply chain space. You think about the, the fact that this is a $9.6 trillion industry that's 12% of global GDP. It's massive. In fact, when you compare the size of the logistics industry in the United States, it's a roughly the same size as the software industry in the U.S. And so it's a huge space, and logistics is becoming far more important today than it's ever been. And you, you don't have to go far into history to realize that you know, during COVID, if a local restaurant or a retailer did not have a logistics expertise in-house or, or that DNA built in to understand how to get product to your house, they probably aren't, did not or are not going to survive. And what it means is that logistics and supply chains have become so much more important to society than they've ever been before. And companies have to know how to do that and have built that expertise in-house. Um, and so what we believe is that that momentum will continue to grow. And we believe that we will become the single um, dominant provider of information services in the logistics and supply chain space globally. And we think, you know, as a business executive, having institutional capital, we think this gives us two opportunities for a liquidity event. One is we think is a business that can be big enough to IPO in a couple of years. Or alternatively, we think it's a really interesting business for some of the fundamental data providers in financial markets that are looking for a high growth space that, you know, if we're talking supply chain and logistics, that perhaps they haven't uh, spent time or investment building it. For them to go build organic infrastructure around data and, and information in logistics or supply chain would be very expensive and very difficult for them. It's much easier for them to buy and acquire. And so we think those are two sort of natural exit opportunities for us at some point. My preference is the first is we're able to do a public offering because obviously I enjoy what I do and want to stay on as, as, as a CEO and, and love it. Uh, but I also understand that uh, this is a business that could very well be owned by a large financial data business. Uh, uh, and so um, that's where I see that's where I see us headed. You're not a traditional media person. You know, you're 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 a trucking guy uh, and then came into media, which, you know, I find, you know, with a lot of these interesting niche publications, and especially with the whole creator economy, that some of the ones that are best, you know, best built to succeed are operator driven media companies. But, you know, obviously starting a media company when you don't really have much experience with it, you're, you're bound to make some mistakes or just not do things that you wish you had. Looking back over the past few years, what do you wish you had known when you first started? Yeah, that's, you know, it's an interesting question because I think a lot of times um, lessons that I learn become more, you know, that we try and error. A lot of trial and error um, has given us sort of the ability to continue to incubate and innovate. I think one of the things that we've found is we have an ability to launch products into the community. Oftentimes those products are unsuccessful and quickly, quickly pivot. So one of the things we did that was probably a, a big mistake is we went international really quick. So we opened up offices in Singapore, we opened offices in Australia, we opened offices in the UK and burned a lot of capital doing it, as well as, you know, we, we brought on journalists and then we ended up having to sort of pull back and, and, and you know, cut those offices or shut those offices down. I think what was regretful about that is that 
Um, we, we did that because we thought that we could take what we built here in the U.S. and expand it globally without realizing that those markets are different, those audiences are different. Um, and we didn't have a data product to go along with it. So we didn't have some reason to stay in the market and we didn't have a sales team to go sell advertising against it. So we hired journalists in those markets, uh, but we didn't actually support it with any type of sort of economic and financial um, interest. And we didn't build business teams to go do that. So that was a huge mistake we made. Um, I think we, we commonly do a lot of iterations. We launch things and we find... Okay, we're marginally successful. I think about our TV product as sort of that example. You know, earlier this year when we were doing budgetary planning going into this year, uh, TV was actually, we, we talked about cutting it and saying maybe we shouldn't be in TV. A lot of companies, you've talked about it on your podcast that a lot of publishers have gone into video and it's blown up or it hasn't achieved success. And so I started questioning, had we made the right decision? We got a couple hundred thousand dollars investment in video is this the right decision? But one of the things that we kept was we kept our TV product because instinctually I thought it was a great way to display our data product. And when COVID hit, it all of a sudden gave us the ability to pivot into virtual conferences. And I think that's an example where we've had success building something, whereas on the international expansion, it was the opposite. We, we, we experimented, we tried, and we failed. And, and, and we didn't just try once. We tried on a couple of different iterations. We didn't open the Australian office at the same time we opened the UK office. We didn't, and so we, we opened a Singapore office first, and then we opened Australia. We should, have not, we should have not done that. We should have not gone global. And I think we thought we were better and more effective than we were. Um, that was you know, one of the biggest lessons uh, that we had uh, from our learnings. You know, we burned a, a lot of capital in some of those decisions, and and frankly, they were regretful because we uh, we had to pull back and and sort of pivot in a different way. For a prospective or current operator that's listening to this episode, what is some advice that you'd give them to be most successful in B two B media specifically? I, you got to get you got to get stuff. I always tell people whether in, in any industry, whether it's B2B media, software, whatever is, I think a lot of businesses, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs sort of had this thought of this great idea and they say so focused on it. Um, I think one of the things, you know, thinking about both good and bad of stuff that, that we've done is we, you know, we initially started to be a futures business and it took two years to get that launched. In the meantime, we ended up launching the media business simply because we had nothing else to do. And we found that there was a the demand for that. Uh, the same thing with our data product. We found that there was a demand for data and we had all these resources sitting around waiting for this futures market to launch. And we had the opportunity to do that. And I think the thing that I, I would say that's made us successful as a business, and I would think this translates to anyone, is we didn't have hard and fast rules of how to get there. We didn't have hard and fast rules of this is the exact product that we're going to launch and this is we're going to stay narrowly focused. I, I think a lot of VCs uh, talk a lot about focus being important, and I believe that focus is important. But I also think that entrepreneurs at times, I've been uh, accused of this at times, is they become so bullheaded that they want to launch something and this is the only way to get there and this is the only idea that they end up missing the opportunities that were available to them. I didn't set out four years ago to build a news publication. I didn't set out two years ago to build a TV network. These things sort of iterated and happened. 
And I think what's made us successful is our ability to sort of pivot really quickly, uh, uh, you know, and, and move into uh, these offerings and in, in white space because we had that desire and DNA. And we, we never moved away from our community. What we always wanted to do is ensure and we protected our community above everything else. And by doing that, it enabled us to launch these products that we never actually initially thought about um, and, and never actually initially sort of whiteboarded or even conceptualized. And so I think the ability to pivot gave us a lot of opportunity to sort of seize the opportunities before others, but also create new product experiences that now can take us into different spaces. If you enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe and give it a five-star rating with your thoughts. If you want even more, sign up for the newsletter at amediaoperator.com. Each Tuesday, I analyze the latest media news. And on Fridays, I do deep dives into specific strategic and tactical topics about building media businesses. Thanks for listening and see you next week.